want you to take your bulletins at this time, take your handout. So I said the past few weeks I'm going to address a doctrine called soul liberty. S-O-L, S-O-U-L, oops, S-O-U-L, not S-O-L-E. Okay. What is the doctrine of soul liberty? I'll say it at the beginning now and then uh, near the end as I work through it more. A short definition would be this. No one can force you to believe anything. No one can force you, no government, no church, no individual can force you to believe anything. I'll expand that a bit. No person, no religious power, no civil authority can force, compel, or coerce belief. That's kind of an expanded way of saying no one can force you to believe anything. Every person has a conscience. And everyone having a conscience is answerable only to God for his beliefs. Please do not take this as the basis for what you see on people's bumper stickers, tattooed on their arms, or put on their Facebook page, Only God judges me, or something along that line. I gave you some homework last week to study what's the difference between soul liberty and the priesthood of the believer. I am tempted to do as my professors did and say, take out a half sheet of paper and we're going to have a quiz. But we're not going to do that right now. Soul liberty is no person, no religious authority, no civil authority can compel coerce or force you to believe something. It is your belief. Whereas priesthood of the believer means you go directly to God. Not through any human mediator. Who is our only mediator between us and God? That is Jesus Christ. You are able to go directly to God. We just sang about that in the last stanza of the hymn that we just sang. No condemnation now. We can go directly into his presence. Where did this phrase come from, soul liberty? There was a man by the name of Roger Williams. You may have heard of his name before. In the 1600s, I'll talk more about him. He was a Baptist, and he coined this phrase in a pamphlet war. Doesn't that sound deadly? They're throwing pamphlets at each other. Not quite. They were writing against each other. Now he used blogs and the Internet and things like that and Twitter. He was on a pamphlet war with another Christian, a Puritan by the name of John Cotton. And I loved how they titled things. Roger Williams' first treatise or booklet that he wrote was The Bloody Tenant of Persecution. I mean, he's no holds barred. This is uh, professional wrestling for real. I mean, he's really going at it. And John Cotton came back with his... And so Roger Williams responded with, the bloody tenet, yet more bloody. These are written in 1644 and 1652. Roger Williams, and so Roger William, uh, John Cotton is saying that there must be 
a union of church and state. That's what the Puritans taught in practice. And Roger Williams said, no, they must be separate. Among other things, Roger Williams said this. Here are three quotes. The civil sword may make a nation of hypocrites and anti-Christians, but not one Christian. The civil sword can make a nation of hypocrites and not anti-Christians, but not one Christian. When somebody puts the word blood in his titles, you can expect that he's going to be rather pointed. Here's another quote that's rather pointed. Forcing of conscience is soul rape. Forcing of conscience is soul rape. And the last one. Persecution for conscience has been the lancet that lets out the blood of kings and kingdoms. In other words, when you persecute people for what they believe, it always results in the death of a nation. It results in the downfall of them. The prevailing belief and practice at the time is that the church told people what they should believe and the state enforced it, punished those who didn't toe the line. Now, I want you to think about how things were then and then your New Testament, the beginning of the church. How did things go from that to you had Puritans. Now, when you think of Puritans, do you think of Bible deniers? Do you think of arch heretics? No, we think of godly men. And I have recommended many a Puritan to you. How did it go from that to union of church and state? Well, let's consider that on your outline here. The corruption of the church following Christ's ascension. This started during New Testament times. It started right at the beginning. A couple of passages to write down. First, Acts chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Acts chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. In fact, let's go over there and read the scripture. We'll start in verse 15. Acts chapter 4, verse 15. But when they, this is referring to the Jews, had commanded them, the apostles, to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people... Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. Here we see right at the beginning, Jews sought to control the belief and practice of Christians. Flip over a few pages. Acts chapter 16, verses 20 to 24. Acts chapter 16. Verses 20 and 24. Not only did Jews seek to do this, but Gentiles sought to do this. Acts 16, verse 20. Paul's going around to different places preaching. Here he's at Philippi. People get saved. And the authorities respond. Acts chapter 16, verse 20. 
And the civil authorities brought Paul and Silas, I'm sorry, and, and the, this is talking about the citizens, brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our nation and they teach customs which are not lawful to us being Romans to receive, that means believe, or observe. Then the multitude rose up against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here we see how unbelievers who rejected Christ and hated Christianity, they used external means of religion and the civil authority to try to stop the word and to compel them to believe what was wrong. It is not lawful for us to receive or practice these things. So we are going to compel you by the sword of the state to, to believe what is wrong. Number two, 312 and 380 AD. Now when you look on these dates on your handout, I'm with you. If you look at dates and you say, I hate history. Because you know what my attitude was in elementary, high school, college, and most of my first degree in seminary? I didn't like history that much. It's just a bunch of names and dates. And guess what I'm going to be throwing a lot at you this, this morning? Names and dates, okay? Towards the end of my Master of Divinity degree and then working on my next Master's degree, uh, the Lord granted me repentance. <laughs> and he helped me see that God works through history and I learned to love and see things from his perspective in that way. And so, you know, I really don't care if you still hate the dates, I want you to love to see what God has done. Okay, But there was a couple things that happened in 312 and 380 AD. By this time, infants were being baptized in the church. And I put baptized in quotes. By this time, the seeds of popery, not potpourri, that's P-O-T-P-O-U-R, something like that. But P-O-P-E-R-Y, the seeds of the Pope, the concept of the Pope, they had already been sown. They had bishops in different areas. This is the church government called Episcopalianism. So these are a couple things. In 312 AD, the Roman emperor, his name was Constantine. He, now watch me now, okay. He became a Christian. He became a Christian and allowed Christianity to then become a legal religion, one among many. And the bishops were extremely grateful, and hear this now, the bishops of the church were so grateful that Constantine did that, that they started to let the Roman emperor have influence in the church. And he started to have a leading, guiding role in church decisions. The head of the state started having an influence in the church. What about 380? The emperor's name there was Theodosius. He made Christianity the state religion. 
and the combination of the state and the church that enabled the rapid growth are you ready? of the Roman Catholic Church did you ever wonder why it was called Rome? well it's because it's headed in Rome the city of Rome it's because the Roman Empire merged it into its civil authority and so they became entwined and that blossomed into a hierarchy of controlling the state and the church and guess what they called it they called it the kingdom of god was present on earth what's the next date that you see there number three 1300s so almost uh, a good five to yeah, almost a thousand years passed until the 1300s. What happened in the 1300s? Well, name you could write down, John Wycliffe. We're going to learn more about him this afternoon. John Wycliffe was a Roman Catholic priest. He was an educator, an academic, and he's reading the scriptures. He's studying his Bible. And he's seeing what God says here. He sees what's going on in the church. And he says, one of these has to be wrong. Which do you think he concluded? The church and the state were wrong. The solas. In the front of your bulletin. Sola by faith by grace, through Christ, by the scriptures, and for God's glory alone. This was when those began to sprout. Those seeds that were there in the scriptures, sown in John Wycliffe's heart, he started to teach it through his followers, and those seeds began to sprout. We're going to look at that this afternoon. And near the end of his life, he translated the scriptures into the English language so that the common people would have the word of God. Through John Wycliffe and his followers, the gospel was preached in their area of England. What happens when God's word is heard, understood, and spread? I'll give you some passages that tell us what happens when God's word starts to go out, Psalm 119, 130. Psalm 119, verse 130 says this, The entrance of your word gives, remember, light. It gives light and understanding to the simple. You know what those years were called from the 300s to the 1300s? And then the, the what ages? The dark ages. What brought about that change it was the scriptures and so you might not know this it might make a good theme for a future reformation sunday but one of the key um, mottos or themes for the reformation was a, a latin phrase see if i can get it right post tenebrous lux which means after the darkness light and it wasn't because of social things changing it wasn't because better government it's because of the word of God. Another passage you could write down along this line. Proverbs 6.23. Proverbs 6.23. The commandment is a lamp and the law a light. 
And then 2 Timothy 3.15. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Others followed Wycliffe. Notably, in one year we need to look at this man, John Huss. John Huss was a, a Bohemian priest. Came to Christ 1369 to 1415. He was burned at the stake. I'll talk more about him a little bit this afternoon. Number four, 1517. Now, of all the dates, I don't care if you remember 3, 12, and the, all the other dates. 1517, you should know that one, okay? 1517, you had a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. And a favorite quote I have from my history books that I remember Martin Luther said, if anybody could have been saved by monkery, it could have been me. I mean, he was a monk's monk. And that's, oh, I better not go any farther with that. He studied the scriptures. He saw it's by faith alone. It's not by works. And he started teaching this. At the church that he taught at at Wittenberg, Germany, that's the W, but that's how they pronounce it, Wittenberg, at the academy that he, he taught at and all his efforts, and I've taught about Martin Luther in the past. I'm not going to teach any more about Martin Luther because we're looking at soul liberty. And how did he get from New Testament to, wow, the American colonies where they persecuted believers for believing something? How did that happen? Sadly, Martin Luther and many of the other reformers, they didn't finish the Reformation. they held on to some Roman Catholic beliefs and practices. And now we're all like, wait, didn't we just sing a mighty fortress of God? Yep, and we're going to sing it more. Martin Luther was a genuine Christian. But there were some parts of his belief that he needed more correcting. And before we get on our high horse and think, well, they should have known. They had their Bibles. I want you to think what we have available. We're able to meet in a Bible preaching and a Bible teaching church with good hymns. Furthermore, you can go on the internet. You can go to the bookstore. You have, we have so much. Think about the parents that you have if you grew up in a Christian family. Don't judge these men because what did they have? Nothing. Nothing. And furthermore, are you perfect? Is every one of... No, we all have to be humble in that way, okay? And so we need to give thanks for how the Lord worked through Martin Luther to bring this about. But there's two things specifically, Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, some other men, two things specifically that were kind of carryovers from Roman Catholicism that they didn't finish. One was infant baptism. That's a problem. Infant baptism because they became members of the church. A second problem was the union of church and state. Luther believed that. Calvin believed that. And as a result of that, coercing belief. Forcing belief. I want you to see infant baptism and church-state union, they are the coercion of belief and it is contrary to scripture. And you might say, is infant baptism really the coercion of belief? Well, think about it. When you read the Bible, who 
are baptized. It's believers. Did that baby believe yet? Nope. Did it have a choice in the matter? Nope. They were coerced into that. Those who believe the scripture following Luther and Calvin, they believed in believers' baptism. So he had rightly John Calvin, Martin Luther, and I love these men. I read their writings. I recommend them to you. But as with anything, it's kind of like eating pike or walleye. What do you need to do sometimes? Watch out for the bones, okay? There are some issues there. You had the Roman Catholic Church, they left it, they got kicked out of it. The Protestant reformers, but there were some coming immediately after them that said, no, there must be believer's baptism, and the state has no authority over me. In particular here, we're going to be looking at Anabaptists and Baptists. So just kind of hold that in your mind. We'll get to that in a little bit here. And these folks, the Anabaptists and the Baptists, guess who they were? persecuted by. Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church, but guess who else they were persecuted by? Those Protestants themselves. 1609, number five. The persecution by the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers resulted in these believers leaving those areas. I mean, wouldn't you? They left those areas and they formed their own churches. I mentioned the Anabaptists. If you like to write down names, one of the first ones was a guy by the name of Conrad Grebel, G-R-E-B-E-L, 1523. He, his pastor was Ulrich Zwingli, another reformer. Ulrich Zwingli said, you need to baptize your infants. Conrad Grebel said, nope, can't find it in the Bible. And he was persecuted, had to leave. 1609, two Englishers by the name of John Smith and Thomas Helvis. Smith is S-M-Y-T-H. Helvis is H-E-L-W-Y-S. John Smith and Thomas Helvis, they lived in England. They were Puritans. They were not Anabaptists. That's not where they came out of. We kind of think that Baptists came out of Anabaptists because, well, their names are similar, right? Okay, they didn't. John Smith and Thomas Hellas, they were Puritans. And these Puritans read their Bibles and they saw the shortcomings of the Puritans because they were baptizing, guess what? Infants and they believed in a union of church and state. Thomas Hellas and uh, John Smith, they agreed with the Anabaptists that who should be baptized? Believers. But they disagreed with them and that the Anabaptists sprinkled believers. But the Bap these two guys, John and Thomas, they read their Bibles, they read their Greek New Testament, and they saw baptism isn't a translation. It's a word-for-word kind of transfer there. If you're going to translate that word, it means to immerse, to dunk, to put under. And they said, we love you guys, but we can't join your church. We're of different belief in that way. And that's the first Baptist church was started in England in 1609. 
Number six, 1638. 1638. Remember I mentioned a guy by the name of Roger Williams at the beginning? Coming back to Roger Williams. Roger Williams was a Puritan. He settled with his wife in Massachusetts, Massachusetts Colony. And at that time in 1609, Massachusetts Colony, let's just stop a second. Do you remember when the pilgrims landed in Plymouth? 16 what? 28. And the date that I have here, number six, 1638, that gives you some historical markers. This is only 10 years later. John Williams was in that colony. He was a Puritan. And he started to read his, guess what, Bible. Are you you detecting a theme here? He started to read his Bible. And he believed that the Puritan church was not separated enough because they were still aligned with the Church of England. Roger Williams was put out. He was banished by the church and the state. And so he left Massachusetts and he started a new city called Providence, Rhode Island. He joined with other Christians. He was immersed. And he formed, in 1638, the first Baptist church in America. Have you ever driven through towns and you see First Baptist Church of, and First Baptist Church of, and if you've been to some towns, usually down south, you'll see Second Baptist Church. There are even some Third Baptist Church. That's not talking about their second best or their third best. It's when they were started, okay? This is the first Baptist church. In 1640, just two years later, Williams formed the first place in modern history where citizenship and religion were separate. That provided religious liberty and the separation of church and state. They were seen as separate entities, and rightly so. The church should not tell the state how it should act, and the state should not tell the church how it should act. They're separate, God-ordained entities. Number seven, 1651, really technically doesn't have anything to do with the development of the doctrine of soul liberty, but I want to include it because it's a great illustration of the necessity of soul liberty. The name to write down here is Obadiah Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S, Obadiah Holmes. I hope some of you young people, when you have kids, you name your boy Obadiah. That's a great name, isn't it? Obadiah. Obadiah lived in Salem, Massachusetts. He was a glassmaker. He opposed infant baptism. You see the date there, 1651. So it's still the the original uh, pilgrims. They're still alive, kicking, and active. Here's Obadiah. He opposed infant baptism. He was brought before the civil authority, which is the same as the church authority there, indicted by a grand jury. And guess who were some members on that grand jury? William Bradford. Recognize that name? He was one of the pilgrims. John Alden. Miles Standish. Pilgrims found Obadiah guilty of breaking the law of having a wrong belief. 
And so Holmes moved then to Newport, Rhode Island. He became a pastor, started a Baptist church there. They had an elderly man from their church that lived in the town of Lynn, L-Y-N-N, Massachusetts, just outside Boston. And so Obadiah and his fellow elders from the church, they're there, they gathered with some others, and they're just having a time in the scriptures. They're opening the word, they're talking about the Bible, and they're praying together, and in barged two policemen. That's what we'll call them, okay? They embarged two policemen, and they arrested these three guys. Find them! And the believers, they wanted to help them, so they took up a collection, enough to pay their fines. And Obadiah was a man of principle, and he said, I will not give them a cent. I'm not going to do that at all. And so he was arrested, tried, and sentenced to punishment to be whipped 30 times. Now this whip wasn't a piece of yarn, folks. It had pieces of glass and sharp stone embedded at the end of that. 30, I mean one, it's already just kind of makes us go like that. 30 times. And while he's being whipped, guess what he's doing with the people, the magistrates? He is having a debate with them. This is wrong. It's unscriptural. Whack. You're contrary to the scriptures. Whack. 30 times. And when the 30 stripes were done, Obadiah Holmes said this, you have struck me as with roses. It took weeks for him before he could sleep on his back. He had to rest on his elbows and his knees. His back was so torn up. And the decades that followed, people would look at his back and wonder, how did you ever survive that? I give that as an illustration. This happened in the American colonies because they didn't believe in soul what? Liberty. Guess who the United States of America owes its freedom of religion to? Men like Obadiah Holmes and Roger Williams. And we should be thankful for that. Number two, what is the scriptural truth then of soul liberty? The scriptural truth of soul liberty. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. For these first couple points, Romans chapter 2. The scriptural truth of soul liberty. Number one, I have some blanks for you here. Number one, you can never be forced to believe anything. You can never be forced to believe anything. The scripture to write down here, Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Let's read these verses. Romans 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, 
and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. The conscience. Every individual has a conscience as part of being made in God's image. By the conscience, we make assessments of our actions and thoughts and decisions of what is right and wrong. Conscience has a standard. The standard must be scripture. But still, no one can compel my conscience and no one can compel your conscience. You have a conscience given by God. But that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for what you believe with your conscience. That brings us to number two. Your beliefs will be judged only by God. Your beliefs will be judged only by God. This is Romans 2, verse 16. Romans 2, verse 16. So everyone has a conscience helping understand right and wrong. And then verse 16, and the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So we see there it is rooted in scripture according to my gospel that tells that there is coming a future judgment of every individual. And who is the one who will be doing the judging? It is Jesus Christ. Paul said this to the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17. There is coming a day in which God will judge the men. God will judge all through a man whom he's raised from the dead. Paul said in Acts 17. Number three. True gospel ministry teaches the word. True gospel ministry teaches the word depending on the spirit to change the heart. True gospel ministry teaches the word depending on the spirit to change the heart. That is the case from beginning to end of the Bible. And I don't have the time to go from beginning to end. So since you're here in Romans, let's go to Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. The point being made here is we do not make converts to Christianity by the point of a sword, the point of a gun, the threat of a guillotine, or, or uh, being kicked out of our country, or more taxes, or things like that. Romans 10, 14 to 17. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Should we force them by gun? No. How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. You see that? There are those who believe and those who don't believe. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The role of the church, of Christians, is to give the word and to pray, Lord, use the word to save them. Open their eyes so they see it and grasp it. Number four. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 2. Passage that we read 
as a congregation earlier today. 1 John chapter 2. Number four, Christians have the ability and responsibility. The ability and responsibility of interpreting Scripture. Christian, you have the ability to interpret Scripture. Christian, you have the responsibility to interpret Scripture. Look at me at verse 21, verse 20 and 21, and then verse 27. But you, verse 20, have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Then down to verse 27. The anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. What happens when somebody hears the gospel and God saves that soul? They believe and they trust in Christ. At that moment, at that moment, they are born again. The light bulb goes on. They see it. They grasp it. At that moment, they get a new nature. At that moment, the Holy Spirit indwells them for the rest of their earthly lives. They have a new nature that loves God. A new nature that loves God's Word. And they have a Holy Spirit working in them. That's what's meant by this word here in these verses, anointing. It's not like you sometimes hear, Oh Lord, send your anointing on the preacher. Okay? That's not what's being talked about here. This is talking about the Spirit's work. And there's two things that the Spirit does in the lives of believers. The first thing is, He takes away hostility toward God in the Scriptures. He removes that hostility that the unbeliever has. Takes it away. And number two, He replaces it with a love for God and a love for the Word. So he removes the hostility and gives a love for God and His Word. And also involved with that love is the ability to understand. Another word that helps us get the point here is to grasp the significance of truth. Now, I haven't told you to asked you to write down much here, but I would ask you to write this down. Grasp the significance of truth. Because there's a difference between meaning and significance. How so? Well, let's talk about that. Meaning is talking about the words of a text. Who stole my chalk? <laughs> oh, here it is. Sorry. False accusation. Don't worry, you won't be ripped. Or whipped. I know my writing is not that legible, but I think you can ascertain what these scribblings are. Okay? Let's all say it together. Ready? 
Fire. Oh, good. Fire. Far. Fire. What is that? What's the meaning of that? Well, what do we need? We need some context, don't we? This could mean flame. It could mean fire. It could mean you lost your job. You're fired. We need the context. The meaning can be understood. The meaning of the Bible can be understood by an unbeliever. He can read the Bible and he can read, you must be born again. And he can tell you what that means. But then what is he going to say? I don't believe it. That's where significance comes in. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't welcome it because he is spiritually blind. His heart is hardened. He's unsaved. He's not born again. But at the moment of salvation, he receives a new nature and the spirit indwells him. And that, and through that, the spirit helps him love the scripture, sees how it applies to him. That's what's meant by significance. Sees how it applies to him. He sees the relationship between himself and this truth. So, fire. What's the difference between meaning and significance? Well, let's pretend it is talking about a flame. The flame on your gas stove. Fire. That's fire. And if you put your hand in that fire, little kid, you are going to feel pain. So the little kid can understand, okay, that will create pain in my body. I understand that. And then the little kid does what? Puts it in there. Because he doesn't believe what you said. But guess what's going to happen as soon as he puts his hand on the flame? He will understand the, what's that S word? Significance. The relationship between the truth and his heart will be like, oh, that's what it's talking about. Christians have the ability and the responsibility to interpret scripture and this is given by God. And so Christian, you have a responsibility to study and learn your Bible. Illumination, that's the doctrine here, okay? Understanding the significance, it doesn't just take all this and just kind of dump it in your head and you automatically learn it. You have to continually be learning for this, the Bible and accurately handling it. God doesn't just drop it in there. God has given means to learn this truth. He's given parents. He's given husbands. He's given the church, both the pastors and the members, so that we can learn truth. Some points of application of all this. Number one. Does this even matter today? After all, there's no union of church and state. Does the United States of America have a state church? Well, no, but is there a growing rise and effort by the civil authority to compel belief on certain issues? 
sure is. The whole lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender issue, that is being coerced. Critical theory is being coerced. The irony is, is that they are saying, we need to have the freedom to live as we believe we should live, but we're not going to extend that to you. And so it's just an exercise in hypocrisy. Like our Baptist ancestors, what must we do? We have to continue doing the work of Christ. If God doesn't hold this back, it's going to increase. So what do we need to do? We need to keep doing the work of Christ regardless of what happens. We also must remember we have rights as citizens of this country and we should take advantage of those. And we must not be surprised if we are persecuted. Those are just three things. We must keep doing the work of Christ. Number two, every soul here is responsible to God Almighty. If you are four years old, 14, 40, or 84, you are responsible to God Almighty. Your destiny is either heaven and the, or is either hell and the lake of fire forever, or it is heaven because of what you believe about Jesus Christ. You either welcome, love him, Submit to him as Lord and Savior, and he's the only one who can wash your sins away? Or you add to it a little bit. Well, I believe and I think I need a good life. Living a good life is needed to wash my sins away, to get into heaven. You hear the truth, you have to trust in Christ. You are responsible for your response. Number three, soul liberty does not make church doctrinal statements irrelevant. There have been those in church history, Baptists, the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, that have said, we have soul liberty. You should allow us to stay in the church even though we say the Bible has errors. Even though we believe that uh, Jesus maybe didn't really rise from the dead. We still call ourselves Christians. We're good Southern Baptists. This has actually happened in church history in the last decades, okay? And they say, so liberty demands that you have to love me. That's essential to being a Baptist. And that's where you say, time out. And the same thing applies for membership at our church. Joining a church, it is a voluntary act. We have things that we say we believe. We do not coerce belief. This is what we believe. And this is how Christians should live by Scripture. If you don't want to believe that, and you don't want to live the way, that is absolutely up to you. Between you and who? God. But this is what we believe Christ's church should believe and how Christ's church should act. Number four, last. Christian, you're responsible to learn and obey God's truth in the Scriptures. This is lifelong. The moment you're saved to the moment you pass away, you need to regularly be hearing the Word. You need to minister to your church body. When we have the Lord's Supper, you need to remember Christ's death on the cross. When you go through a trial and a hardship, 
don't flee from Christ. Recognize God's ordained that trial so that I will seek him through it and glorify him in it and become more like him. You need to pray in your closets. You need to meditate on scripture. This is a key reason and goal I have in our daily devotional. Where for five days, Monday through Wednesday, you're in the scripture and I give a little truth in there. That's helping you know what it says and it's also training you how to handle the scripture accurately. It's not just read it and you have your devotions. You have to put the effort into it there. You have a ministry to your children and a ministry to your family. All these things are essential, God-given means so that you can know the scriptures. Take your burgundy hymnals before I close in prayer. Turn me to 209. Two hundred nine. The hymn of two hundred nine in your Burgundy hymnals is "Come, Holy Ghost, our God and Lord." And who wrote this hymn? Martin Luther. Look at that. Follow as I read. Joan Pinkston is the one who wrote the, the music. Okay, verse one. Come, Holy Ghost, our God and Lord. Be all thy graces now outpoured on each believer's mind and heart. Thy fervent love to them impart. Thou holy light, our God divine. Oh, cause the word of life to shine. Teach us to know our God aright and call him Father with delight. Verse 3. From every error, keep us free. Let none but Christ our master be, that we in living faith abide in him with all our might confide. Thou holy fire, our comfort true, grant us the will thy work to do. And in thy service to abide, let trials turn us not aside. Lord, by thy power prepare each heart and to our weakness strength impart that bravely here we may contend till we, through death, to thee ascend.